Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. Lower your thermostat and bring a reusable bag. Commute by bicycle and recycle. These are all everyday life actions promoted to help the climate change crisis. But how is it decided what changes we should make in our lives? How easily do people change their behavior and can it actually make a difference? I'm Robin Allison Davis, and you're listening to OECD Podcasts. There's a science to understanding human behavior and how it works hand in hand with climate change policy. And I'm speaking about that today with Chiara Verrazani, OECD lead behavioral scientist, and Kevin Green, vice president of RARE, Center for Behavior in the Environment. So Chiara, what exactly is behavioral science? Behavioral science is really understand why we do what, what we do. And sometimes you do things and you don't know really why. And it's useful to know why. It's really to try and understand how you make decisions so that you can make better decisions in the future. Behavioral science is very much of a multidisciplinary approach in which you study human behavior from uh, different perspectives. We combine findings from psychology, neuroscience, social science, to really try and understand um, better human behaviors. So how are governments using behavioral science? When you think about it, must have public policy challenges. So think about climate change or things like digital transformation or even corruption or, I don't know, the spread of fake news online. All these big policy challenges involve human behavior. But the fact is that even if we are aware of it, it's true that most policymakers and traditionally public policy really often assume an unrealistic uh, model of human behavior. So we tend to assume that uh, people, citizens, policymakers, corporation, everybody will just uh, behave in a predictable way. So we assume that giving information on health, for example, it's enough for people to change their behaviors. We actually know that it's not the case, right? Uh, so we know that it's not enough to tell people that smoking is bad for the health. Uh, a lot of people still smoke. And you can think about so many examples like these. So really, behavioral scientists like me, who work in governments around the world, try to understand the barriers and the biases uh, faced by people and organizations to achieve a certain goal. Using behavioral science will allow you to, to support governments to really base their solutions on real evidence of how people make decisions, and also to design policies that are centered on humans, not on models of how humans should behave. Do you have examples of how behavioral science has impacted policymaking? Yes, of course. So the use of behavioral science in public policy is quite recent. One of the first projects of applied behavioral science was trying to get people who were late in paying their taxes to pay their taxes on time. And so they basically sent letters to citizens who were late in paying their taxes. And um, they did an experiment in which they will send letter, different letters to different people. They tried to add one single sentence to one of these letters saying that the large majority of people in the neighborhood, for example, they pay taxes on time. And this is a very simple, like one-on-one behavioral science technique. 
using peer pressure or social norms. And so this simple letter in only one year, um, they were able to, uh, to increase the revenue of taxation by 200 million pounds just by sending this single letter. Well, that was an example on taxation, but let's pivot to climate change specifically. Kevin Green leads the Center for Behavior and the Environment at RARE, based in the United States. So why is behavioral science important for finding solutions for climate change? Well, you know, I like to say that humans are are perhaps the, the best problem-solving species that ever lived. Um, unfortunately, just not a problem like climate change. Uh, we like problems that feel really close. They feel urgent. They feel really personal. Um, think of the sort of threats that our early ancestors faced um, and then our species, you know, adapted to cope well with. And climate change can feel really like none of those things. It's kind of distant and it's hard to connect cause and effect. And it's hard to really feel like in the grand scheme of things that that I can do anything in my own life to affect any meaningful change. We can't change what's fundamentally true about human beings as a species, but if we understand them better, we can change how we address the problem uh, in order to really meet people where they are. And, and behavioral science is our key to being able to do that. In your recent report, Climate Change Funding Needs Behavior Change, you state that many existing climate solutions rely on changes to individual and household behavior. Because of this, behavioral interventions offer a much larger potential to curb emissions than is commonly recognized. How much of an impact can behavioral interventions really make? It's, it's popular in some circles to, to say that your behavior doesn't matter. Um, there's nothing much you can do to save our species from the impending crisis. And we think that's a pretty myopic viewpoint. Of course, you know, we need large scale uh, system wide solutions and massive policy change to support them. But to say that that I personally have no role in that as an individual, aside from voting and protesting, both of which are important, uh, sets up what I think is a is a false choice. And this really comes down to essentially three, three reasons, at least three reasons. First, your emissions, my emissions, they do objectively matter. We're all part of this. And so any notion that there's nothing you can do, however small, is, is possibly a bit disingenuous. Um, I'm, I'm not really comfortable with, with sitting on my hands while I wait for uh, the policy change that we need. And it doesn't take an act of Congress or, or Parliament as it were, to change my behavior. There are a number of aspects of my life, including how I eat, how I get around, uh, where I get my, my energy to power my life that cumulatively have a big impact. Uh, and, and that cumulatively part is where we, we get also to sort of the second reason, which we sometimes call the snowball effect. When you adopt solar or opt for an EV, instead of an internal combustion engine, or you make a conscious choice uh, maybe to rely uh, a bit less on meat for your protein, you start to see yourself more as part of the solution. And you begin to sort of evaluate other decisions that you're making in your life through the, through the same lens. So you get a sort of snowball effect in your own decision-making uh, based on sort of what you're understanding about your own identity that leads to other green behaviors. Uh, and the really, you know, potentially transformative one is you start to influence those around you. 
humans are an incredibly sp social species and we tend to model our behavior after our peers. Um, we call this social influence. So, you know, we know that, for instance, one of the strongest predictors of whether or not someone has solar panels, uh, more so than their age or their income or their race or their education, um, is whether or not their neighbors have them. Um, I think it's worth mentioning also that behavior change interventions can target upstream actors as well, you know, to amplify mitigation efforts. Policymakers and business leaders and other officials are they're people too. Uh, and so there's an opportunity to do some more work uh, on, on upstream behavior change pathways uh, to have those system-wide effects. But the bottom line is um, the vast majority of solutions that we need, or at least a large plurality of solutions that we need to tackle the climate crisis at some point are going to require on people in their homes, in their lives, making the choices to do those things. Um, and so that's where behavior change comes in as a part of a comprehensive solution to the climate crisis. Well, let me start by, by saying that you know, now we know that green transition is basically uh, depends on a wide range of human activities. So in a way, um, even if uh, climate ch change is a result of a lot of different drivers and constraints, human behavior will always be part of these solutions in one way, one way or another. One thing that I think it's very important to, to stress is that sometimes governments tend to, to focus on the supply side of uh, climate change. So let's uh, focus on renewing energies and so having more uh, cleaner um, sources of energy and let's focus on building better infrastructures and advanced technology. And all this is super important, but if people are not switching energy sources, if people don't use the bike path, if people, they, you know, they don't purchase electric vehicles, all these infrastructures and supply side work is going to be useless. So we all know that changing options is costly. And so we tend to stick with the options that we are used to. We are creatures of habits. Um, and so, for example, there's a lot of evidence about the power of using green defaults in energy consumptions. So especially in Germany, in Switzerland, I think at least since five years now, they have introduced, um, basically when you're asked to choose dif amongst different plants uh, or energy, um, you have to, to choose how to, for example, uh, warm up your, your place or uh, consume electricity. They, they introduce by default a green option. Um, and so it means that you're still free to choose something else, something that is less sustainable, but you have to opt out. And we know that just by doing this, you will increase the number of people who actually go for the, the greener uh, option. So especially if green options are more expensive, it's very important to check that it's aligned with consumer preference. So it's fair to say that behavior change and policy, they work hand in hand. Exactly. There's no way we'll get through this without the two. That's right. So how do we move from the behavioral science to behavior adoption. It's hard to get people to change their behaviors. They don't want to drink without straws. They don't want to have a reusable bag, all these different things. How do you bridge that gap? 
Yeah, people are people are complicated, uh, and we're a we're a stubborn species, if nothing else. Um, you know, one one way out to answer this, Robin, is um, you know, climate change, like many, if not most, environmental crises, is a classic cooperation problem. Um, and what I mean by that is, it's the sort of problem in which collectively, as a group, we all do better to cooperate to do the good behavior, but individually we all do better to be the one free rider uh to to defect uh as it were and so what you have in that situation is that everyone then um, makes a choice to be a free rider and there's no cooperation happening and so you have two potential states one in which everyone is cooperating and one in which no one is cooperating no one wants to be the sucker and really it boils down to um three phases uh, for making that shift. The first phase in the process is uh, essentially generating what we call collective demand. And this involves changing people's attitudes uh, towards the, 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 the good behavior, the target behavior, and changing their belief uh, about the attitudes of those around them. People are, are sort of more influenced by the beliefs of those, of those around them. The second phase, when you've generated this sort of collective demand, is is coordinating a sort of synchronized shift in behavior. So, you know, especially for, for cooperative behaviors linked to climate change, people tend to be what's called conditional cooperators. It's a wonky term for a simple concept. It basically means people are only willing to cooperate when they see others doing so. Uh, I have two small children, a three-year-old and a five-year-old. So I see conditional cooperation every single day. Uh, my kids are only willing to cooperate when both of them are are doing so. So coordinating a shift, you know, in behavior involves uh, changing the belief that other people are engaging in that same behavior, that other people are cooperating, that after the whole group kind of moves together, new behaviors are often um, kind of unstable. So the final phase, the third phase um, of, of promoting cooperative behavior adoption is um, strengthening the, the new norm um, of the behavior. And, and two, two specific mechanisms provide that, that necessary strength. One is what we call increasing observability, which means um, making sure that people know that others will see whether or not they're doing the behavior. We, we care about our reputations. Um, we care what other people think about us. And so um, we're much more likely to do something uh, that other people expect us to do if we think they're going to see that we're not doing it. So it's a little bit like shaming yeah, or it's 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 sort of like the prospect of shame. Like even even the 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 potential that I might have to experience shame if my neighbor sees, you know, that I'm um, not recycling or something, um, is enough to motivate me, you know, not to look like a jerk. Um, the second uh, the second sort of mechanism is similar, but it's um, eliminating excuses. You know, often people will regress if they believe that they have sort of plausible deniability, if they have an excuse that others will accept. Like, I didn't know I was supposed to, I didn't know that I could opt for renewable energy credits with my utility or something. Um, and so, you know, designing for those types of responses means sort of preempting those, those possible excuses, like helping make it obvious that those um, options uh, are available. So, um, you know, this is one way to think about sort of how to increase uptake of these these um, these sustainable behaviors. It doesn't mean, of course, that they can completely replace you know other drivers like we talked about, including 
the provision of you know basic information or the economic incentives um, that policy often supports. Kiara Varazani explains that the information overload can be a barrier to climate-friendly behaviors and how simplicity is key. I think that it's always important to, to start by understanding what are the barriers and the drivers for behaving in a certain way. When you take a step back with climate change, we know that it's something that is very distant in the future and it's not very tangible. Of course, you know, we're, we are being told every day that it's, this is coming and this is already happening, but it's something that is very difficult to, to see. So a lot of the time, the information about energy consumptions, climate consequences is complicated to grapple with. So people feel distant to it. Um, and so it's really important to make it easy in terms of uh, simplifying information, but also reframe the consequences on something that people care about. If I'm telling you, though, that climate change has health consequences on yourself right now, um, so you are at risk of developing health issues right now as a consequence of this, well, it seems that people are more likely to change their behavior. So in a nutshell, trying to really reframe the, the risks and the consequences of climate, climate change in ways that are closer to, to people's life might be really beneficial. So health, well-being, but also money. So if you if any time we can we can uh, kind of pair climate change um, incentives with real financial incentives, it will always be a great idea. I think there's a lot of other things in terms of how behavioral science can help not only with kind of small nudges or sending letters or changing communication, but really inform the design of policies. We know, for example, that making information more intuitive, as I was saying, might help uh, in changing behavior. So I don't know if you're familiar with the energy uh, star label system. So when you buy a fridge, sometimes you have a sticker uh, telling you um, how much that fridge, that fridge is consuming in terms of uh, electric energy. And so these things uh, can be designed and in some countries have be desi been designed using evidence from behavioral science. Um, and so I think that's an important point because we, we, we tend sometimes to think that behavioral science is useful to design uh, small intervention or small tweaks to existing policy. And our example comes from India, where they recently changed a regulation on a thermostat, so setting the, the default temperature, especially for air conditioner. In India, it's a place where uh, a large part of um, emissions is because of uh, conditioners, because it's a very uh, warm country, of course. And so by regulations, they started to, to set the, the default temperature at a, at, at a slightly higher temperature. So instead of the default being, I think, as 22, they set up a little bit higher, uh, 23, 24 degrees, so that by default, when you switch on your air conditioner, uh, it consumes less uh, energy. So changes like these are 
ingrained and really informed by evidence of actually how we make decisions and how we change our behaviors. And so I think it's important to, to stress that behavioral science can inform uh, traditional policy tools or um, regulations or even financial incentives. Both Chiara Verrazzani and Kevin Green are promoting the use of behavioral science to help solve the issues plaguing the world today. Chiara is the head of the Behavioral Insights Project database at the OECD. The OECD has a repository of behavioral science projects. You lead this program. Can you tell us a bit more about it? The idea of this repository is to really be a knowledge hub for behavioral science as applied to public policy. So the first functionality is to have a repository of projects led by behavioral scientists or behavioral science specialists in public policy. And so uh, you, you're, you, you can jump in and uh, basically upload a project about, I don't know, you're trying to, to boost uh, vaccination rates in Uganda uh, for a specific thing, or you're trying to change the behaviors of someone else in another part of the world trying to, uh, to increase the uptake of um, green energy, for example. And so you have a lot of people um, uploading projects uh, while they're doing these projects on behavioral science. And from, for someone who is not part of kind of the behavioral science community, I think it's, I hope that it will be a great um, space because you can actually uh, use it almost at, as a review tool. So you can, uh, it's, it's free, so you don't need to, to log in or anything. Uh, you see this map and you're able to filter things. So for example, you're interested in trying to see who is trying to, um, to, to change uh, vaccinations behaviors around the world and what kind of solutions or techniques they're using. And is this working or not? And if it's not working, why is it the case? Uh, you can have a better sense of what's going on around the world uh, in terms of behavioral science applied to public policy. So it's more about information sharing and everyone can learn from each other, from all these different projects around the world. Absolutely. And I think it can serve multiple purposes. The first being, if you're not uh, part of the community, you can have in one single space, in one single place, the, you know, the aggregate level of information. But also when you are in the community uh, and you're an expert and you're part also of the OECD behavioral science network, for example, even in that case, knowing who is doing what around the world is not that easy. Governments, they're, let, let me say this, they're not that great at sharing information. And the good thing about this portal is also that we embedded what it's called a pre-registration portal. What is it? Um, it's pretty easy, but it's inspired by uh, open science, the open science movement. So we give the opportunity to people to share the project even before having the results. Why this is important? Because sometimes it's too late um, sharing the results after you, you, you get the, the data collected and everything gets done. It's really useful for people to know what um, people around the world are working on uh, even before collecting the data. So you can have knowledge sharing can become a little bit quicker and more efficient. Does the OECD take an active role in any of these projects? Um, it depends. Some of them uh, are in collaborations with governments. 
but this is very much open doors policy. So anyone who is working with governments can upload a project. Um, there's some projects, of course, part of our work is as well to actively support governments on specific policy challenges. So we tend uh, as much as we can to do run experiments of projects with multiple countries at a time. And, you know, knowledge sharing is beautiful and it's very useful. Kevin Green works more directly with communities to use behavioral science and climate issues. So what about RARE? Can you tell us a little bit about the organization and what you do with RARE? Sure. I lead a team at RARE called the Center for Behavior and the Environment. And we're a global team of behavioral and social scientists, designers, and trainers that use the science of human behavior uh, and an approach we call behavior-centered design to create effective solutions to big, hairy environmental challenges by making them work for the people who need to adopt them. Uh, over uh, its nearly 50-year history now, RARE has partnered worldwide with, with organizations and communities in, in more than 60 countries to inspire change so people and nature thrive in places like coastal fisheries, on smallholder farms, uh, and, and even in, in people's daily lives uh, as consumers. Um, and our job at the Center for Behavior and the Environment at RARE is to use the tools of behavior-centered design and the science of human behavior to try and, and make that work, to, to understand how to motivate people in order to uh, inspire them to change so that people and nature can thrive. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Robin, to you for, for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to OECD Podcasts. To learn more about the OECD's work in behavioral science and the Behavioral Insights Projects, go to oecd-opsi.org. To learn more about the OECD's work on climate, go to oecd.org slash climate change. To learn more about RARE's work, go to rare.org. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com slash OECD.